At the exit of white columns sits a black car, curled up like a panther, a burnished steel lens reflecting the low glow of Oahu Road. It is a unit. It is a mobile unit of Medicops Unlimited. A silvery badge is embossed on its door. A chrome-plated cop badge the size of a dinner plate, bearing the name of said private peace organization and emblazoned, dial 1-800-THE-COPS, all major credit cards. Medicops Unlimited is the official peacekeeping force of White Columns and also of the Muse at Windsor Heights, the Heights at Bear Run, Cinnamon Grove, and the Farms of Cloverdale. They also enforce traffic regulations on all highways and byways operated by Fairlanes, Inc. A few different FOQNEs also use them, Caymans Plus and the Alps, for example. But franchise nations prefer to have their own security force. You can bet that Medizania and New South Africa handle their own security. That's the only reason people become citizens, so they can get drafted. Obviously, Nova Sicilia has its own security, too. Narcolumbia doesn't need security because people are scared just to drive past the franchise at less than 100 miles an hour. YT always snags a nifty power boost in neighborhoods thick with Narcolumbia consulates. And Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong, the granddaddy of all FOQNEs, handles it in a typically Hong Kong way, with robots. Medicop's main competitor, World Beat Security, handles all roads belonging to cruiseways, plus has worldwide contracts with Dixie Traditionals, Pickett's Plantation, Rainbow Heights, check it out, two apartheid burbclaves, and one for black suits. Meadowvale on the insert name of River, and Brickyard Station. World Beat is smaller than Medicop's, handles more upscale contracts, supposedly has a bigger espionage arm. Though, if that's what people want, they just talk to an account rep at the Central Intelligence Corporation. And then there's the enforcers. But they cost a lot and don't take well to supervision. It is rumored that, under their uniforms, they wear t-shirts bearing the unofficial enforcer coat of arms. A fist holding a nightstick emblazoned with the words, Sue me. So YT is coasting down a gradual slope toward the heavy iron gate of white columns, waiting for it to roll aside, waiting, waiting, but the gate does not seem to be opening. No laser pulse is shot out of the guard shack to find out who YT is. The system has been overridden. If YT was a stupid pet, she would go up to the Medicop and ask him why. The Medicop would say, the security of the city-state, and nothing more. These burbclaves, these city-states, so small, so insecure that just about everything, like not mowing your lawn or playing your stereo too loud, becomes a national security issue. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 42 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, uh, oh, man, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry for what I've done to Ed and Jeremy, what I've done to myself, and what we're going to do to you, dear listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we're taking a page out of, uh, inspired by... 
you know, other podcasts have their reading series, you know, they go through some truly awful op-eds, maybe a book, you know, oh, what, 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 would, what are these crazy ideas that these right-wingers are coming up with today? I wanted to top all that. I wanted to go to one of the most batshit insane books that I have ever read that may ever exist. Uh, it is peak like libertarian mind palace shit. It is it is peak fucking like ode ballad to capitalism type of shit. Like it's so wild. So I mean, I'll just I'll just get right into what the book is. But but we there's so much context that we got we got to provide for this before we actually dive into <laughs> this into this bullshit. Uh, so it's it's called the machinery of freedom. Guide to Radical Capitalism by David Friedman. That that name might sound a little familiar to some of y'all, right? Ooh, David Friedman. Ha- haven't they talked about Friedman before? Yeah. Well, yes, but but we we've talked about my man's daddy, Milton Friedman. <laughs> the one and That's only. That's right. The one and only, the Chicago boy himself, a Nobel Prize winner at that mm-hmm. show. The fake you, Nobel Prize, not the real, yeah, not a real one. <laughs> that's right. The fake Nobel Prize, the one in economics, the participation trophy for bourgeois science. <laughs> um, David is David Friedman is Milton Friedman's son, right? And so David Friedman has built this kind of like like. A reputation in this niche for himself as a as a as a very serious anarcho-capitalist thinker and scholar. And this book, The Machinery of Freedom, is meant to be like, I don't know, ironically, like a kind of like blueprint for for anarcho-capitalism. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's a vision. But, it's a vision of a better world, more more faithful to liberalism, which is really conservatism, as he'll he'll uh, explain to us. Yeah, the 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 original liberal. Oh my god! And as we'll get into, <laughs> does he ever talk about uh, that he's actually a classical liberal, right? Libertarians right. fucking love this shit, right? That like we're the real liberals here. We're we're classical liberals. We'll talk a lot. You know, about that, in the in the tradition <laughs> of in the tradition of of uh, of slave owners and aristocrats. Yeah. You know, no, we're that, actually that kind of liberal. We are the. We're the faithful adherence to philosophy that was created before the advent of capitalism in which we adhere to the conclusions of, but not the reasoning of, to, to oppose the state. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> the, the machinery of freedom, this guide to radical capitalism, it was originally published in 1973, which, you know, just just coincidentally, like the same exact time as the original 9-11, the yeah. coup in Chile, right, was kicking off right as Pinochet's goons were stabbing their knives into Cybersyn. Uh, and, and, you know, and a group of economists with the backing of a military, military dictator um, would plunge the entire country into this authoritarian neoliberalism, right, based on the ideas of people like Milton Friedman and Gary Becker, right, the Chicago boys, you know, uh, that this this economic model and ideology that would reverberate throughout the world in the following decades. That was the time at which Milton's son, David, would publish his manifesto for anarcho-capitalism. 
just re- really, really reading the writing on the walls here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, say, oh, ooh, now, now, now is the time. Now is the time that actually, uh, and and it's funny because he he oftentimes like, and in the book um, that we'll we'll get into for sure, he like sets himself up. He sets up his daddy Milton as as a moderate. And David is the radical son. against his father. Time, honor, tradition. Uh, this is the hero's journey for him. You know, every single son is. They're just. Uh, they're fighting with their dad, or they're loving their dad. That's it. That's that's the story here. That's what anarcho-capitalism is: fighting your dad. Man, how much of how much of the world? How much how much horror and terror and and just like fucking ludicrous shit in the world has come out of a son? feeling inadequate to his father's legacy yeah i mean yeah not all of them are you know the only good one i can story i can think of is like when jared kushner got his dad bailed uh you know um pardoned for just a rampant corruption i mean the lengths the lengths to which a son can go for his father they, that can be an inspiring story uh, sometimes but usually nobody does that shit <laughs> you know nobody does a long time <laughs> to get into the white house um and take shit from donald trump to be like hey can you pardon my dad pretty please no matter how much talk you guys are doing about daddies i'm not playing uh cats in the cradle at all in this episode so don't even try <laughs> that's that's that real father son excellence right there <laughs> The book was originally published in 1973. We're we're reading the the second edition, which came out in 1989. That's the version that we're reading uh, because it was available for free, and, and we right. ain't paying for this shit <laughs> at all. <laughs> at all. Um, and and then David Freeman then updated it with a third edition that came out in 2014. But but importantly, like and. I don't know how you can get away with this. And, and, you know, publishing was just a different world back then. And and I don't know, but like, like the second edition is essentially like the only updates are uh, fucking like some footnotes (laughs) and like, like, like another like prologue or whatever. And I, and the third edition is basically the same thing, right? Because like these ideas are timeless. They're they're evergreen. The logic and the the blueprints and the guide for for radical anarcho-capitalism. The world might change, but the ideas, the ideas stay the same. You know, one of the moves he tries to do here very early on is to convince you that anarcho-capitalism is not the contrived bullshit philosophy it is, but exact it's actually just like it's such an obvious philosophical position that it can be arrived at if you simply look at the world and see the problems that you identify with some other issue and realize that they're not actually caused by things like inequality, you know, concentration of power by mark in the marketplace or by, you know, inefficient regulation. They're actually caused by much subtler reasons that stem from refusing to allow people to freely and voluntarily associate with each other in a privatized society. That that word voluntary is so funny too, because it's <laughs> yeah. all part of this like voluntarism, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, 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 voluntarism, right? Oh, it's, it's, it's doing a lot of heavy lifting. Before we dive into... Uh, the the quote unquote ideas in this book and and let me just say that yeah I mean this is a this is a fucking wild ass book but it is also part of I, I feel like a part of the TMK ethos and the kind of series that we got going as well of like the knowing your enemy like 
we have like we have to know what they think, why they think it, and like how they're going about trying to make it real in the world, right? Like like that is so important. So while while this is obviously like as we get through it, it's gonna be it's gonna be hilarious, it's gonna be funny, it's gonna be wild. Uh, but it's only slightly more like radical than what the mainstream of like this kind of like right wing, like libertarian economic philosophy really is. It's trying to push that Overton window a little bit further to the right than where it actually currently exists in the in, in the world in mainstream mm-hmm. politics. Uh, and, and a lot of the fucking like philosophical underpinnings of you know his like in defense of property and and his ideas of of how markets and trading and voluntary exchange and stuff actually works like that that philosophy that foundation is shared even even among people in the the liberal you know the democrats right to the conservatives like they they have this idea that this is how capitalism actually works that it really is just like it, it's like a no true scotsman argument right like oh well like only it's not capitalism unless there's like property and 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 exchange that benefits everybody um and if capitalism in reality doesn't operate that way then that's just not really actually capitalism and what we need to be striving for is a real capitalism and we'll see that and so much of what he talks dist- about yeah. is this like libertarian mind palace shit as well. Like he's like he's sitting in his fucking like in his armchair conceiving of a world that doesn't actually exist in any kind of real material way. And also, as we'll talk about, too, the world that he's describing, if it did exist, you should stay very far away from it and you should keep a gun to prevent it from getting close to you because it is a pretty horrifying world on many levels um, that you wouldn't want its ideas near you, nor would you want people, honestly, people from it that believe in it near you either. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before we get into our, like really dive into our blockbuster reading series, um, I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, David is trying to live up to the legacy of his daddy, Milton, but ooh, ooh, the the Felson family tree goes so much further than that. Let's talk for a minute about this the true Felson excellence of the Friedman family. You know, we've we've been acquainted with the granddaddy himself, Milton. We'll soon get uncomfortably familiar with his son, David. Ew. But ooh, we ooh, we'd be so remiss not to mention David's son, Patrie Friedman, who founded. Drum roll, please. The Seasteading Institute. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, for people who might not be aware, oh, you, you, you blissful, blissful ignorance of what the Seasteading <laughs> Institute is. I'm going to toss it over to Ed. Ed, tell us what's the Seasteading Institute. Oh, God. Well, you know, Elon Musk wants to go to uh, Mars. Uh, Peter Thiel allegedly wants to go inside the blood vessels of millennials and the seasteading Institute wants to go off uh, shore, but not to do a tax haven. Although I'm sure one day it'll do that too, but to create um, nice little communities, colonies on the water, 
you know, that are just uh, on the boat chilling without, uh, you know, any, you know, these things like international rule of law, without, you know, regulations on human experimentation, without regulations on, uh, you know, governance, on corporations. Like, it's just, it's just dudes being bros in the middle of the ocean on a giant boat that will somehow be turned into a habitable uh, ecosystem living scenario, whatever the fuck they think. I'm. It's hard to follow a lot of the proposals. I'm sure they take them very seriously, but it's 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 just it's just you know a giant boat. It's just imagine like a bunch of the people at Theo Capital and in Silicon Valley deciding they want to start a new society. They want to start like a worse Singapore on a boat. Just off the shore of like the bay, <laughs> like that's that is the dream of the Seasteading Institute. That is so that is so important because also yeah we have to drive home that the Seasteading Institute had backing from Peter Till, right? I mean Peter Till just loves fucking like pissing away his money on all of these fucking like like libertarian utopian ideas, uh, and a, a floating Singapore is a perfect way to put it as well, right? That's exactly what it is. It's like a fucking like it's a shanty town uh, version of Singapore on like a series of like flotillas and like like reclaimed like oil derricks and shit like that, like in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> like the Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> Much, it's Much. fucking Waterworld. It's fucking Waterworld. Yeah, much like the 1990s movie, it was also going to be a huge waste of money because no yeah. one is going to care. <laughs> but but unlike the Seasteading Institute, Waterworld was at least a, a very entertaining bust. <laughs> that, that was, you know, it has none of the charm of Kevin Costner. Patri, uh, you know, in this in this Friedman family lineage of always trying to push these batshit insane ideas to their brink. Uh, you know, Patrice, like, I want, I want to do the Seasteading Institute, but, but that's not all. Patrice is such a more interesting character than just founding the Seasteading Institute. My man is the peak of bros being dudes trying to be pirates. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> after Seasteading, you know, which was a huge bust, right? Like, it got a lot of attention and, like, like 2013, 2014, right? Like, oh, like radical thinkers coming out of Silicon Valley. You know, importantly, uh, he quit his job as a software engineer at Google to start the Seasteading Institute. So th that that that's your TMK link right there, right? <laughs> We're doing the network mapping. We're doing our, our red string conspiracy board. <laughs> it's, it's all linked together. After the Seasteading Institute went bust, Patrice Friedman was like, no, I'm going to actualize my daddy's uh, and my granddaddy's ideas in a different way. And he went out and started what he called the Future Cities Development Corporation, which was a project to establish a self-governing charter city within the borders of Honduras. So <laughs> essentially what Nevada is trying to do right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. No. <laughs> Uh, just a company town from the outer worlds, you know, where every single thing is just branded from this one company or a conglomerate, as will probably be the case in Honduras. I, I would not be surprised if Patri Friedman does get like a charter from Nevada to start like some like his future city's development corporation, because unlike in Honduras, you know, he might not get attacked by the by, by people that actually live in that country that are like, yeah. get the fuck out. Yeah. 
what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But wait, but wait, it doesn't stop there. Patrie is just relentless. So in 2019, uh, Patrie Friedman founded Pronomis Capital, which is a, a venture capital firm whose purpose is to bankroll the construction of experimental cities on vacant tracts of land in developing countries. How it. is this how not innovative these colonialism? <laughs> let's redo, let's disrupt colonialism and imperialism, but also bring back company towns. Um, and we'll do it instead of using the state, we'll just use capital, you know, because it's it's developed enough, it's matured enough. We don't need the fetters of the state anymore. We just, we just, we'll build it, you know, we'll Bob the Builder it and we'll, you know, they'll come. <laughs> <laughs> can we build it? Yes, we yes, can. We can. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, like the Seasteading Institute, Pronomis Capital is also backed by who else but Peter Till. Again, his money is just everywhere. He's so he's so desperately trying to uh like I feel like there's some like like weird uh competition between Till and Musk about like who can set up their uh, like fucking like labor camp, uh, libertarian <laughs> charter colony. city. Yeah, penal colony. Yeah. Like <laughs> when they learn that Antarctica exists, it's over, dude. I mean, it's over that, for these settling that, <laughs> settling that would be a million times easier than literally anything else they keep dreaming up. Building some shit on the water, good fucking luck. Building some shit in another country, like your white rose from Mr. Robot, good fucking luck. Building some shit on Antarctica where the only thing backing it is like the fucking UN. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. You could probably do that real good, actually. The problem is, is that uh, they're, they're all 200 years too late. And Australia is already already colonized and already settled, right? Like this mm-hmm. fucking Peter Till would have definitely been bankrolling Captain Cook's exhibition to Australia uh, and and and. Fucking pirate Patrie would have been the first mate on Captain Cook's ship for sure. Being like, I see a whole, I see a whole new world untouched by any humans because I don't recognize Aboriginal Indigenous people as humans, <laughs> and I'm gonna start up my, I'm gonna start up my future cities charter right here, right here. Yeah. No, what I've always wanted is Vikings, but with venture capitalists, you know, just have (laughs) discover England. And I don't know what they would do when they get over there, try to privatize everything or maybe just kill everything and uh, or and use the blood to stay young and uh, young and regenerate smoothly like Theo allegedly does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we gotta have a drop we'll gotta develop like a sound drop for every time we talk about Theo like <laughs> the link you made to Singapore is also so perfect here as well because like the whole purpose between like this Pronomis Capital and this Future Cities Development Corporation uh, is that the cities they want to develop will be aimed at foreign businesses seeking friendlier tax treatment so they're literally mm-hmm. trying to create tax havens they're trying to create the Netherlands um, in Nevada <laughs> <laughs> amazing amazing this is this is uh this just feels like a crusader king's uh map like just border gore maybe heart of iron four where it's for some reason uh deutschland has um 
or the Dutch, not the Deutschland. I got my uh, got my imperial powers mixed up. But uh, the Dutch just have like a slice of land in Nevada for some fucking reason. That's definitely not tax purposes. It's actually because of the efficiency of the marketplace there. <laughs> One last little bit about, uh, or a couple last little bits about the tree Friedman, just because it, 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 he he's such a fucking like bizarre character. Hard to believe that he exists until you know who his dad and his granddaddy is, right? And then it just makes complete and total sense. Uh, so Patrie Friedman also played in the World Series of Poker. Uh, <laughs> so he's he's a poker just guy. saw the poker episode of Billions. They just had <laughs> and, an episode where Taylor wiped the floor with some dude from Krakow, the weird name, Krakow Capital. I would, I bet he watches that scene every single day thinking how he can <laughs> oh, that have been regulators. Me. That could be me. <laughs> <laughs> as I mentioned, worked as a software engineer at Google a decade ago and also describes himself as a transhumanist who wants to be cryonically preserved. Bro, we, we got we, we to gotta check Epstein's black book. And see if he if he's on the flight logs. Is Patrie Friedman on the flight logs? There's a there's actually a secret visitors log at the New Mexico ranch where Epstein said he wanted to freeze his dick in his head, and that's and for like what, every year there's just like a day. It's probably his birthday or something where it's like Patrie Friedman, Patrie Friedman, Patrie Friedman, Patrie Friedman, Patrie Friedman, Patrie David Friedman, Patrie Friedman, Patrie Friedman. <laughs> so like you know Epstein wanted to uh, allegedly like you know Epstein wanted to like like. Uh, like sire a whole fucking like race of offspring using yeah. using his his it's really it's really insane that it's just like what if patrie friedman is <laughs> oh my God. what's the odds that patrie <laughs> friedman kid. is a fucking epstein clone <laughs> maybe he killed epstein you know that's also that's Ooh. always a possibility <laughs> uh, I, again yeah. that father-son like, excellence looking, just keep looking into the water lenny just keep looking into the water <laughs> Just think, just think about the, just think about the Cairo, the Cairo base in your island. Just think about St. Michael's. <laughs> oh, what a fucking goon. All right. So, I mean, this is our, this is our journey into the, the traditions of fucking bizarre fell sons. Um, but now, now with that out of the way, right, with that necessary context for understanding the machinery of freedom. A guide to radical capitalism. Let's just dive right into this nonsense. Um, and for those following along at home, and we'll we'll throw a link to the the PDF of the book if you want to like look into the Ark of the Covenant uh, and and watch your face melt. Uh, you you can you can follow along with us. <laughs> so the whole first part of the book is called "In Defense of Property," right? Because this is necessary, right? Like. Like you can't have good, proper capitalism without property. And we have to defend property, right? We have to defend it with our lives because that that property is the ultimate human right. I like the way that David Friedman like sets himself up and tries to uh, describe himself in the uh, in the intro to the book where he says, my political views seem natural and obvious to me. Others find them peculiar their their peculiarity consists largely of carrying certain statements familiar enough in political oratory to their natural conclusions. I am an Adam Smith liberal, or in contemporary American terminology, a Goldwater conservative. Um, only I carry my devotion to laissez-faire further than Goldwater does. 
Sometimes I call myself a Goldwater anarchist. <laughs> Look, what like I understand that, that this is <laughs> I understand that this is like situated within a particular time and place in 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 America. Uh, but also that is fucking hilarious to call yourself a Goldwater anarchist, right? Like like the like the libertarian movement still talks about Goldwater in these in these terms. He he was supposed to be their yeah. messiah. Anarchism. You guys have heard about it. No gods, no state, no idols, no masters. I am of a specific type of brand of anarchism that idolizes this uh electoral politician. <laughs> who was a who was a conservative and actually said that he was against the state, but would actually have advocated for massive expansions of its killing ability. But whatever, no, 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 it's cool. I'm a Goldwater anarchist. It's it's totally consistent. I mean, that yeah. all, that is a good opening silo and red flag to um, ask yourself what's uh, how seriously you should take. Um, you should take our boy, but you know we'll go through it. We'll talk. We'll talk about him and how he believes we live in a we'll, society. We'll, we'll look through it. <laughs> now, I like this because. He has to, on one hand, recognize that we live in a society while also trying to, like Thatcher would, like a decade later, say that there's no such thing as a society, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I love that because the his whole defense of property and of anarchism and libertarianism all boils down to this one idea of just being left alone, as he puts it. And he, he says, like, the difficulty comes in defining what it means to be left alone. We live in a complicated and interdependent society. Uh, each of us is constantly affected by events thousands of miles away, occurring to people he has never heard of. I, I love this because it's like, on one hand, you have to recognize we live in a society. Right. He's preempting the meme by like 50 years. Right? You got it right. But, <laughs> but, but on the other hand, uh, he then has to go off and be like, what if we didn't live in a society? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just, which is something actually he does advocate for, you know, this this dissolving of the bond uh, that uh, connect human beings to one another. And and eliminating the logic that you know there's something beyond you as an individual uh, is lost if you focus solely on individualist pursuits, right? I mean, you can be an like you know I'm an anarchist, but I am not an anarcho-capitalist, right? It's hard to entertain the idea that you have to that any collectivist enterprise requires you to sacrifice or give up a part of yourself negatively, right? You know, but um. Not here, not here. Actually, here the problem is that since we live in a society, we do all sorts of you know horrible things, right? I think one one interesting thing he talks about, you know, in this sort of we live in a society theme, or he, of course, like yeah, the purpose of the book is you know we you have a libertarian society, it needs to be free and attractive to other people, the institutions of private property or the machinery of freedom, right? And that's really where the name of the book comes from. But he also goes on to say, you know, this leaves open the question of how one acquires ownership of things that are not created or that are not entirely created, such as land and mineral resources. The total rental value of all property land and buildings adds up to 13% of all income. Most of that rent is on the value of buildings, which are created by human effort and thus pose no problem to the in the definition of property rights. The total rent of all land, which does pose such a problem, is thus only a f tiny fraction of total income. Which, you know, if you have it already, there is this really good book called um, Property is Theft, right? By one of our, by one of the good anarchists, 
um, <laughs> um, uh, Prudhon, um, Pierre Joseph Prudhon, and he talks about well, not well, if you're Marx, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. If you're not if you're Marx or uh, you know, and some of our Marxist Leninist listeners, I may alienate, you know, no pun intended, um, them, but uh, I, you know, <laughs> does he has a really good uh, section on property that kind of is like the mirror, the mirror opposite of uh mirror opposite of this section right and he's and he's basically asking who owns paris um because he talks about how you know paris is i believe it's him hold on i have to find it but basically you know the argument is that you know paris is paris because of this you know it's not it's not solely just like a city that you can go there and rent a lot of the value there is not simply just like you have a domicile you have access to work but it's because of humans contributing collectively to uh, Paris and its cultural image and its place in our minds, building up its infrastructure and building up its economy and building up its social life and building up its political system, like all collectively, these things give Paris the value. And it makes no sense for some landlord to come in and offer a slice of that as rent and and just be like, yeah, that's my cut. That's my contribution to society. I just, I hold this shit you come here, you live here, you give me a cut of it. And that is uh that makes sense as like a transaction in the marketplace, right? And I think it's interesting that like on the one hand, Proton says you can't really own any part of something that we all collectively build and has existed long before us. And and Friedman's like, actually it's like it, you can, and it doesn't even matter, right? You should just ignore people who say that um you can't own land or mineral resources because they are just they're worth so little, actually, that you have to own them. And it's not even a problem if you own them because you can get the rest of your income somewhere else. I, I like this is going to be I, I feel like a dynamic throughout our entire exploration of this book is that on one hand, we fucking like like debunk the, the bogus ass political economy and political philosophy underlying these ideas. Right. Like I like that you brought up Pruitt-Hans argument that property is theft. Because a, a mantra throughout this book, which is a mantra, uh, you know, that that he, I feel like, really laid the groundwork for in like contemporary conservative and libertarian thinking is the idea that actually the only real theft is taxation. Taxation is theft. Property is freedom. Taxation is theft. I mean, we can debunk that as, as you know, so thoroughly, but also the this was the first moment and this this comes in like the first few pages of the book this section where like my red flags were raising in terms of just like this is empirically false <laughs> right like uh the, mm-hmm. the the value of land is actually the huge like vast majority of property right in terms of real estate it's not the buildings on top of it like yeah obviously that's some of it but the real the real reason why it cost so much fucking money to like rent or buy a house um, in a city is not because of the cost of the building materials and the construction cost. It's the land cost. That's what it is because that goes against his whole philosophy, his whole like, like argument that he's trying to lay out. He does the double move of actually saying that the inverse is true, right? That actually what's true in the real world is false in my libertarian mind palace. Now we can just move on, right? Like he does that so much, right? And doesn't provide any kind of references or citations or sources or backing for any of these claims, right? It's all just, it's all just like this series of assertions um, of what he feels like is true. Like how could land be valued? 
valuable. It, it already exists out there. It's natural. Um, it, it doesn't have any human labor uh, mixed up inside of it. And therefore, it's only minuscule, right? But that, but that is so not the way that in the actual, like, capitalist system that he's defending value is actually engaged with and imbued upon things in the world right but i think there is a lot of effort to try to push quickly through this ability to like think about what is actually going on when he tries to hand wave through uh ownership and bulldoze immediately to property right and insist that like property you know is actually like a human right or a natural right that, you know, which also runs right up in opposition against Proton. Um, but, you know, there's a section, right? He, he argues, and it's also part of a larger section where he tries to argue, all right, there are property rights, there are different types of property regimes, private and public property, uh, property regimes, uh, but uh, private property is clearly superior to public property and that public property actually you know undermines our ability to be you know free human beings but you know with regards to property rights themselves he tries to establish it by saying you know but property rights are not the rights of property they are the rights of humans with regard to property they are a particular kind of human right the slogan conjures up an image of a black sitting in in a southern restaurant always reach for your wallet when someone says a black uh that's <laughs> there, there are so many points throughout this book where he's like yo we could say oh it's just an outdated term that he's using but even at that time that's that like 73 like, yeah yeah even in 73 people oh, were like mm, I, i'm sorry did you say a black you, David. yeah the people say the blacks or a black today are like very much the people <laughs> are just old enough to have said it in the 60s and they refuse to stop <laughs> they just that or they or who if things were a little bit nicer for them they might say the negro you know they mm. that's also one that uh pops up every now and then if you let them but yeah just um it's uh it's 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 lovely it's a good flag to just like <laughs> to go oh okay um but yeah you know a black sitting in a southern restaurant right that's that's what the slogan conjures up for him that situation involves conflicting claims about rights but the rights claimed are all property rights the restaurant owner claims a right to control a piece of property his restaurant the black claims a limited right to control of part of the same piece of property the right to sit at a counter stool as long as he wants none of the property claims any right at all the stool doesn't pipe up with a demand that the black respect its right not to be sat upon uh, the nice thing to say about this is pretty fucking ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> it, it it gets down to that thing that like you know you know he's trying to argue that property rights are actually a type of human right but what he's not not saying quite explicitly but is uh, essentially explicit throughout the whole argument of the book is that it is also the ultimate right, right? A right to property supersedes all other rights, your your right to life, your right mm -hmm. to service, your right to, uh, you know, life and liberty, uh, you know, is all superseded by the right to just the pursuit and control of property. I think that is why Proudhon spent a lot of time in what is property, you know, trying to explore conceptions uh, and, and how property is constructed, right? Because what is working in a lot of these situations is an attempt to, to construct a scenario where it's okay to ignore another person's rights or human rights, right? 
And this idea that property rights are actually extensions of what the person wants and needs and that we're really just talking about two different uh, sets of beliefs about how the world should work, or, you know, that can be settled in the way they might in a political arena erases what's actually going on here, right? To say that uh, the conf- the question of segregation comes down to competing claims of property rights is like really just, just sound like a fucking idiot, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that is not at all what is going on here. But that is uh, what that's the necessary reduction of an interaction between people and also part of the danger i would hope that people see with libertarian ideas right to to reduce pretty serious conflicts and problems that occupy all sorts of dimensions in in the moral realm or in the political or you know social all of these uh, you know ethical spiritual whatever all of that is reduced to the question of uh, whose property rights are we going to respect or how can we respect uh, property rights in a way that doesn't undermine any individual at any given time, but also creates consistent rules so that uh, we can have we can have courts and we can have laws and we can have markets and we can have uh, trade and we can have uh, you know voluntary exchange. Ideally, right? Property is just like I, I think like in in many instances it's really just like a it emerges. I think as Prothon talked about, like it's just a facade, right? That obscures the ways in which certain a status quo or you know, a certain political economy justifies itself. And then gets everyone to learn to speak in that language, right? Yeah. If you want rights, then you should you should go out there and get that bag. You should get some property, right? And then and then you'll get a whole bundle of rights along with your property. Now, we say that jokingly, but that is really what he what he means, right? Is that like freedom is found by engaging in the marketplace, by getting money by exchanging goods, by owning property in the marketplace, that's where freedom is found. That's where liberty is found, right? That's where your rights are found by, by doing that. I love this because you know, something that came to my mind as I was reading through this book, uh, as my brain was liquefying, uh, is that series of comic uh, comics by Matt Bores um, called the, the Mr. Gotcha series. And I think the famous one that everyone knows is right. Like, like you've got like a peasant that is saying, you know, oh, it, it would be nice if we improved upon society just a little bit. And then you've got Mr. Gotcha coming up out of the well and saying, oh, but I see that you are participating in society. Very curious. I'm intelligent, right? Like that, like that is exactly <laughs> right. the, he is literally and sincerely making those arguments throughout this book. And that, that's, that's the foundation of that libertarian mindset. Now it's perfect because, you know, later he, he goes on to actually make that argument by saying that, you know, the marketplace is not a battlefield where the person with the most money wins the battle and takes the whole prize. If it were, Detroit would spend all its resources designing cold gold Cadillacs for Howard Hughes and Jean-Paul Getty and their ilk. To begin with, the market does not allocate all of its resources to the customer with the most money. I, I don't know how you live and I don't know how you actually live in society and think that that's true, right? That like if the marketplace were this winner take all, then the Detroit auto manufacturers would devote all of their money to just creating gold Cadillacs for billionaires and millionaires to buy and creating nothing for anyone else. For him, the mere existence Mm -hmm. of consumer goods uh, is proof enough that the marketplace is uh, a system of equity and meritocracy. 
it is it is really important to draw this point out because this is something that uh serves as the foundation i think of his you know defense of private property in uh in contrast with public property, but also to like view public property as something that should be eliminated, right? You know, he says, you know, under public property, the values of the public as a whole are imposed on the individuals who require the, the use of that property to accomplish their ends. Under private property, each individual can seek his own ends, provided that he is willing to bear the cost. Our broadcast media are dull, our printed media diverse. Could this be changed? Easily. Convert the airways to private property. Bam. Let the government auction off the right to broadcast at a particular frequency, frequency by frequency until the entire broadcast band is privately owned. Would this mean control of the airwaves by the way? Rich? No more than private property and newsprint means the newspapers are printed only for the rich. And he goes on, you know, to develop this example of the media where he says, look, the media provide a striking example of the difference between the effects of public and private property. But it is an example that only shows part of the disadvantage of private property of public property. For the public, not only has the power to prevent individuals from doing what they wish with their own lives, it has a positive incentive to exercise that power. If property is public, I, by using some of that property, decrease the amount available for you to use. If you disapprove of what I use it for, then you, uh, then to you, from your standpoint, I am wasting valuable resources that are needed for other more important purposes, the ones you approve of. Under private property, what I waste belongs to me. You may, in the abstract, disapprove of my use of my using my property wastefully, but you have no incentive to go to any trouble to stop me. Even if I do not waste my property, you will never get your hands on it. It will merely be used for another of my purposes. Uh, again, another sort of uh, disconnected from reality perspective, you know, this, you know, I hate to regurgitate Chomsky here. I mean, but he is right uh, always. As, uh, but, you know, Chomsky is <laughs> talked about the fucking political economy, of the mass media, like almost what, 40 years ago at this point. It is not that the, the mass media is just like a system for the rich. Right. I mean, there are newspapers that serve that function and who their demographics are like, you know, professionals, financial professionals, political professionals, or, you know, or elites or whatnot, right? The whole purpose, like it is much more effective to just have your viewpoints mediated and subliminated and accepted and proliferated than to only have like a forbidden palace or a closed garden where only those people who you want to believe in the thing can believe it. Better, it's accessible to everyone. The viewpoint is, is embedded in the medium, right? And this like also speaks to like such a superficial anticipation of what happened. I mean, we did privatize, you know, the, the airwaves and uh, it is hard to say that the privatization of it made it better or diverse, right? In fact, it created a series of monopolies that have gone out of their way to uh, reduce the diversity in content, uh, to pollute the cultural commons with filth, <laughs> you know, nonsense, uh, grown up, uh, you know, baby bullshit for us uh, that narrows the the range of our imagination. It's it like the modern expanse, I feel like, or the modern um, media environment is like a direct renunciation of his, his, his belief that public property is uh, the devil uh, and that, you know, you need to you need to privatize everything if you want things to be better because it's all privatized today and it fucking sucks. Yeah. The modern uh, condition, like the modern conditions and institutions and environments of, of everything, right? Not just media, but like everything he talks about. And oh boy, are, are we going to get further into like his goals and plans for for schools and universities and policing and criminal justice, right? Like all of these things 
the the way that they actually exist. And we cannot say um, that the that implications of the privatization of media, for example, or the privatization of policing or schooling, uh, that the implications of this were somehow not clear um, in the in seventy three, let alone in eighty nine, uh, which is the edition of the right. book that we're reading, let alone in twenty fourteen, which is the third edition of this book. Right? Like you, there's simply no excuse other than a willful ignorance to to say that oh well i just didn't know that this is how that this is what the uh the outcomes of privatization would be in fact i think what he would actually say is that that this is somehow privatization um done wrong or more accurately what he right. would do is he would blame government intervention into privatization as the real devil here, right? Like that's the real thing that's poisoning the well of privatization and of property is that there still exists a government which intervenes in private ownership um, and private use of private property. The existence of a government is always the ultimate uh, boogeyman and excuse for why his ideas are actually right in many regards, are they right? Um, but you know, uh, but have actually been corrupted in some way. It, it's always convenient, and you should always be ultra skeptical of any theory or any analysis that puts forth conclusions, and then when confronted with just just overwhelming evidence to the contrary. It doubles down on those conclusions and finds some kind of uh, always existing excuse, taxation, government intervention, whatever, as the real devil, as the real reason why his conclusions have not been borne out. One of the favorite things that the libertarians also love to do, right, and something that came up a little bit earlier is that one of the reasons why they believe system is superior is because it's you know, and this is something that animates his argument, is that they're the real classical liberals, right? All through this, the the affirmation of property is ultimately an attempt to like create a bulwark on the on the power of the state, you know, the power of private entities to coerce you to do things, right? It's necessary so that we can create like a basis for a deeper sense of freedom where everyone just voluntarily interacts with each other. But I mean, you know, all of that, you know, a pretty shallow, you know, as I said earlier, like a pretty shallow understanding of like what the first libertarians, you know, like Wilhelm Humboldt, you know, were talking about in the 1700s or in the you know early 1800s, right? Like these were people who were in their day, right? It was the main threat to human beings and their autonomy was the state, right? Corporations were not existing. And I doubt that any of them would support privatization the way that it's talked about by libertarians, because it's 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 through the medium of a you know, a corporation is a is a legal person that is immortal and carries on through the ages and has all sorts of powers and, and let more powers and agency and, and rights than human beings uh, do and less of the responsibilities, you know, uh, ties or accountability to other human beings. It's it's like a it's a more profoundly anti-human institution. And the idea that we can build like a, a human society uh off of its like empowerment uh would I feel like make most of these early libertarians, especially Humboldt, which is like the you know, I think the originator for most of this stuff, shrivel up and want to die, you know, want to fucking stab their eyes out at reading these sort of arguments. I've never I've never really understood how 
they can arrive at that conclusion but ignore the rationale and ignore the reasoning. I mean, Humboldt himself used to say that it wasn't, it's not simply just like coercion. I mean, coercion is a part of it, right? But it's that human beings are supposed to be individuals that are able to like really not just do whatever they want, but develop themselves to be whatever they want. And that the reason that the state is a problem is because it prevents individuals from harmoniously connecting with the diversity of other people and building things with them and connecting with them and also having a true like ownership of it that goes beyond property, but a connection to it that you're not just building it for like consumption, right? But that you're building it the way like someone who tends to a garden has some sort of ownership that would not then be cashed in as like fruit, as access to its fruits, right? But the libertarians don't understand this. The libertarians, like, I think really believe that if you tend the garden, you should be able to like eat the fruits of it and not that like some things can be taken care of and developed solely because they make human beings cultivate like, you know, or develop their skills and connections with each other and collective spaces and something beyond themselves that isn't immediately offered up on a trade or a transaction. Uh, it's just like, it doesn't seem to register. I mean, I think to to that point, right? Like what he would say is, uh, and, and this is something that so many, you know, libertarians in this ilk and, 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 and anarcho-capitalists in this ilk argue as well, is that actually what, what they're trying to do is create the foundations to let thousand different kinds of communities bloom, right? That the that the institution of property and private property in particular, um, as he puts it, is the machinery of freedom, because what it means is that you can have uh, your hippie commune and you can have your um, anarcho-capitalist, you know, uh, fucking like compound <laughs> and you can have all of this stuff that just exists harmoniously together. And, and what is the what is the foundation that uh, actually networks it all and allows it all to happen that creates the structures um, for this to happen. Well, it's property. It's the marketplace, right? He even, he makes this explicit. And this is like, this is some peak fucking like Mr. Gotcha type of argumentation here as well, where he says that ideologically, hippies are hostile to what they view as a wasteful, unnatural mass consumption society. Yet, the private property institutions of that society serve them just as they serve anyone else. The Mother Earth News and the Whole Earth Catalog are printed on paper bought on the private market and sold in private bookstores. I mean, I mean right there, right? What, what he's, it's that peak like, oh, I see that you don't like private property, yet you participate in a private property regime and a marketplace. Hmm, very curious. Yeah, it's also really frustrating because it also gets back to like libertarians just not really, it's just like such a disgrace to claim that they are like classical liberals when their conception of human beings at the end of the day is consumers, right? Who are dissatisfied and disappointed with the range of consumption they have. When in reality, like if you are serious about applying classical liberalism. The idea is that human beings inside of capitalist society, if they are envisioning a, a society that's built along the lines of classical liberalism, right? Wanted a society where they would be more able to produce and have control over production, right? You know, one of, you know, Marx, I think understood this, you know, really well in his early manuscripts, you know, when he's talking about like alienation of labor, right? He's saying, 
that, you know, work is essential to the worker, not part of his nature so that he does not fulfill himself in his work, but denies himself and is physically exhausted and mentally debased. This alienated labor that casts some of the workers back into a barbarous kind of work and turns others into machines, thus depriving man of his species character of free, conscious activity and productive life. Right? And he goes on and he says it mutilates the worker into a fragment of a human being, degrades him to become a mere appurtenance of the machine, makes his work such a torment that its essential meaning is destroyed, estranges him from the intellectual potentialities of the labor process in a very proportion to the extent to which science is incorporated into it as an independent power. It is not that people... I think it's 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 a, it's a little stupid and diminutive to think that people just want to have the freedom to consume, you know, and and to say and to have the anarchist this anarcho-capitalist vision rest on that at its very core is ridiculous, you know. Uh, anarchism is deeply anti-capitalist, right? Because the idea is not to just simply have privatized production. Um, and voluntary exchange so that you can have access to it and consume whatever is produced. The idea is to liberate people from any sort of framework that prevents them from doing what they want, not simply consuming what they want, right? Not simply wasting what they want, but actually living a deeper freedom that goes beyond just like an exchange or a trade with individuals. And it's it's really just like such a flattening here. To, this is why property rights are not human rights, you know, because they require you to defend them uh, obscure and push out and squeeze and condense everything about the human being and focus you know, maniacally on uh, how we can ensure that the property is prioritized. That perfectly transitions into another one of his bugbears, right? That he spends a lot of time talking about, but a lot of time um, completely misunderstanding, right? Setting up this straw man to use uh, the logical fallacies that that these people fucking love to trot out. You know, in, in his idea that um, and you know, socialism is actually just a philosophy of envy, right? It's it's workers are envious of capitalists. Right, they're jealous. I'm envious of Bezos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jealousy I mean, is I'm, a disease, I'm... bitch, and I got it, man. <laughs> I mean, that, I wish he would. I wish he would have just said that and saved himself <laughs> the trouble of writing pages and pages of drivel, because uh, that is that is a, that is essentially that is the essence of his understanding and his rebuttal of quote-unquote socialism, right? And, and I think this is something that's really important and it's something that we were talking about before we were recording that like the understanding of socialism and of Marx, right? And and my man David Friedman talks about Marx um, and he needs to keep that name out of his mouth uh, because, <laughs> but, yeah. but talks about it in a way that is almost like a telephone game, right? It's a muddled misinterpretation and misunderstanding, a willful one, I'll say, of what socialism is, of what Marx has written, of what socialist thinkers have thought, kind of transmitted through uh, multiple layers of, of interpretation, right? It's, it's his understanding of what socialism is and of what Marx has said comes from bad faith 
uh, understandings of these ideas, which themselves come from bad faith understandings of them and so on and so forth until like the file itself is so degraded and so corrupted. I can see every individual pixel in his argument. There's no definition to it at all, right? There's there's no uh, fucking like understanding. It, it, it really is like he talks about, for example, so he says, you know, Marx was scientist enough to make predictions about the future that could be proved or disproved. Unfortunately, Marxists continue to believe his theory long after his predictions have been proved false. One of Marx's predictions was that the rich would get richer and the poor would get poorer, with the middle class gradually being wiped out and the laboring class becoming impoverished. In historical capitalist societies, the trend has been almost the exact reverse. The poor have gotten richer. The middle class has expanded enormously and now includes many people whose professions would once have classified them for membership in the laboring class. In absolute terms, the rich have also gotten richer, but the gap between rich and poor seems, so far as very imperfect statistics make it possible to judge, to have been slowly closing. So in his idea, the gap between the rich and the poor is actually a, a, a trend of contraction, that they mm-hmm. have been getting closer and closer to each other um, over time. And why? Because there's a rising tide and we're all riding that rising tide, but that rising tide raises the lower among us up even higher and faster than it raises the higher among us up. Does that, no, I'm, I'm throwing it over to you. Does that strike you as a true and accurate characterization of the world um, over the last 50 years? I'm uh I'm going to call bullshit. <laughs> call bullshit you know, and it's also because there's also he goes on in that section, right? This is in chapter five where he's talking about how the rich get rich and the poor get richer, which is a stupid turn of phrase. But whatever, you know, and so he goes on and he says, you know, look, we can note that the, both the rise of the general standard of living and the decreasing inequality appear to have been occurring fairly steadily over a long period of time in a variety of different more or less capitalist societies. In the previous chapter, I argued that liberal measures tend to injure the poor, not benefit them, and to increase, not decrease inequality. If that has been true in the past, then the increasing inequality we have experienced is in spite of, not because of, such measures. Of course. Uh, And then he goes on to continue in saying, even if the capitalist invests all the income from his capital and consumes none of it, his wealth will only grow at the rate of return on capital. If the interest rate is less than the rate at which the total wages of workers increase, the relative wealth of the capitalists will decline. Now, historically, the rate of increase in total wages has run about 5 to 10% a year, roughly comparable to the interest rate earned by capital. Furthermore, capitalists consume part of their income. If they did not, there would be little point in being a capitalist. The share of the national income going to capital in this country has varied over time, but not consistently increased, which is not true, right? <laughs> that is not true. Absolutely but- not. But I, but I think it is interesting in in that this argument of his, right, the idea that, you know, a rising tide lifts up all boats is interesting to uh, place it in the historical context, which is like 1973, uh, which is like about the time where the reforms that had been ch- taking place over the past decade took effect and you start to see a decrease in middle class wages. Uh, you start to see an increase in the concentration of wealth at the top. You start to see, you know, the return on income for capital. I mean, even as it goes into a decrease, it starts to take up a larger and larger and larger slice of uh, the national income. Now, the nothing in this text 
as far as I can tell, would anticipate this or offer any sort of rationale for why it happens. I mean, but obviously, I feel the reason why is that it's not simply that the rich get richer and the poor get richer, but that as he overlooks and keeps consistently overlooking, that if you have a large amount of capital, there are things that are in your interest either as an individual or as a, a collective class, you know, he likes to pretend collectives don't exist, that um, that makes sense to do and are just done, which go against the perfect mind palace anarcho-capitalist utopia that he is envisioning uh, or the mind palace construction of the marketplace, which is to say people do not always do things solely on a analysis of whether they're going to get a huge return or money from it, you know, because there are other intangibles that you can trade in. If you have, especially if you have capital, whether that's a you know regulatory environment, uh, as his son knows, right, by trying to make uh, cities where there are friendly regulatory environments, uh, whether that's in politicians themselves, whether that's in public attitudes through messaging, whether that's through lo- other forms of lobbying. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which capital can be poured into ensuring that in the long run, right, the larger and larger and larger slices and shares of it go to smaller and smaller and smaller group of individuals. And that's not something that will immediately show up clearly as it didn't because that's not, you know, the situation we have today is not one where everyone got richer, but in fact, where a bunch of people got rich, an even smaller group of people got incredibly fucking rich. And then most other people uh, stagnated or got worse significantly so over the past four decades since he made that statement. Man, this is some more bullshit. This is another interesting through point in this kind of like libertarian and anarcho-capitalist argumentation is that they they set themselves up in a really unenviable position, but they've done it to themselves of having to be the defenders of capital and of capitalist. Right. Because why? Because they are doing capitalism par excellence. They are the embodiment of capitalism. These are the ubermensch of capitalism that we have to uh, strive to be more like. And, And what it does is by having to set yourself up to defend an undefendable class of owners, an undefendable class of power and of increasing concentration of wealth, Right. You end up having to do these kinds of mental acrobatics. Right. You have to bend your back so far that it just snaps in two uh, because you simply cannot actually look at the the way in which the world clearly exists, the trends that have been existing for a long time in the development of capitalism in the world. Uh, you cannot look at that in any kind of clear-eyed way and then reach the kind of conclusions that they reach, right? That actually mm-hmm. people are getting richer, right? And they love trotting this this, this um, out. You know, this is something that people like Steven Pinker do all the time as well, right? And in, in claiming that um, actually the world is the best that it's ever possibly been. And this might actually be the best of all possible worlds is that they have to look at things in absolute terms and they have to ignore relative terms, right? They want to talk about relative comparisons, but never in terms of actually comparing the the relativeness, right? What I mean by that is this is his argument, right? Is that actually 
all of our critiques of capitalism, um, all of the socialist critiques of capitalism, Friedman says, are actually based on anachronistic understandings of capitalism in the 19th century, in the industrial age, right? What they do is, and as he puts it, quote, they forget that those conditions seem intolerable to us only because we live in an enormously richer society and that our society became so productive largely through economic progress made during the 19th century under institutions of relatively unrestrained laissez-faire capitalism. What they, what they have to do is they have to say that all critiques of contemporary capitalism are, all, are actually based in an understanding of how capitalism existed um, in the midst of the satanic mills, in the midst of the industrialization. Right. What, they, what they have to do then is say that your experiences of living in capitalism as it exists today are wrong, right? They, they don't recognize those experiences as being true. They reject them outright and in favor of instead saying that, no, 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 my, uh, my mind palace understanding of how I think capitalism ought to behave is actually the truth here. Like a good point that I guess is like also reiterating, you know, earlier he tries to dismiss why capital is um, basically, he's, you know, arguing a little bit that, you know, actually labor is exploiting capital or labor or that maybe yeah. leftists are <laughs> exploiting capital and trying to say that it's worse than it really is. Right. There's a section where, you know, he says that, you know, few people believe that capitalism leads inexorably to the impoverishment of the masses. The evidence against that thesis is too overwhelming, right? <laughs> but <laughs> relative inequality is a much harder matter to judge. And many people believe that capitalism, left to itself, produces an increasing inequality of income. Why? The argument, in essence, is that the rich capitalist invests his money and thus makes more money. His children inherit the money and continue the process. Capitalists get richer and richer. They must somehow be getting their high income from the workers who really produce the goods the rich man consumes and who must therefore be getting poorer. The assertion that the capitalist gets his increased income at the expense of the workers ignores the fact that capital is itself productive. The increased productivity resulting from capital accumulation is one of the reasons for general economic progress. But this argument also ignores that capital in of itself can also be immensely corrosive, right? That it is not that I don't think that the arguments are simply that the capitalist is taking you know, most of the gains that the worker would have directly. I mean, there is, uh, you know, a significant amount of that, you know, productivity has increased massively over the past 40 years and wages have not risen with it. But there's also the fact that uh, by virtue of having these massive gluts of capital and trying to hoard them, right, there have been political moves that have been taken to prevent the expansion at the same time of taxation of social programs. And instead, focusing energy on creating, you know, uh, endless reservoir of uh, bullshit consumer goods and energy is put, immense energy is put behind ensuring people that they need to, you know, get them. I mean, that's, not, of course, it's not to sound like some, the hippie that he stereotypes saying that, oh man, if only we stopped consuming things, right? But there are more, it's it's more than simply like the capitalist is uh, stealing uh, money from the worker and pocketing it, all of it from them. It's, yeah, the productivity, there's a gap between the productivity and what the income should be. And a lot of that is going to uh, the capitalist, right? To use his parlance, right? But also there's like this concentration of, of wealth and power has also yielded a political system, which does not provide a safety net that matches uh, either the growth 
of uh, this productivity that he talks about, or that even addresses the gap between productivity and um, wages. And instead, uh, there's even more money that's missing, and there's an even bigger hole at the bottom of the barrel. And it, it seems a little ridiculous to say that actually, you know, um, to hand wave that and say everyone's getting richer because we're making even more stuff, right? Uh, and also the idea that it's not immiserating people. I mean, how many hundreds of millions, if not billions of people live in abject conditions so that we can have a rarefied group of high tech, uh, not even high tech, uh, of consumer goods, of personal electronic consumer goods? I mean, how many children... Uh, or born, raised, or you know, born, raised, and die in the shadow of a of a rare earth mine. You know, how many people live near uh, one of the places where they dump the waste from these factories and die? Or how many people work in these factories and die? Or how many people work in plantations? You know, for chocolate or for or for coffee or tea. I mean, like it's 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 uh it's mind boggling to say that there's no mass immiseration that's going on. That there aren't extraction zones, that there aren't sacrifice zones, that there aren't populations of people who are deemed expendable and but necessary for production to happen so that we can have consumption. It's just such a, like a constant uh, simplified decoupling from reality because it's only seeing things through the lens of the market, which already itself has massive amounts of externalities embedded in it. Seeing things through the lens of the market while also uh, being the, the champion knight defending the honor of capital. It, it, it's, it's such a bizarre position to put you in. Let me, let me rebut everything that you just said, Ed, by quoting David Friedman back at you. Oh, yeah. I see, I see no reason better than greed for claiming that I deserve a share of someone else's wealth. Again, mm. Jealousy is a disease and you're dying of it. You got a terminal <laughs> case of envy. Of course. You know, with, I am that I mean, bitch. that is itself very funny as well uh, to, to be like, actually, the workers are the greedy ones here, right? The, <laughs> the, the labor is greedy and they want a share of the productive value uh, that capital puts into the world, puts into society, you wouldn't even have a job if it weren't for capitalists. You wouldn't even have a, a house or, or, or food on your table if it weren't for the, the grace of capitalism. It's very funny um, to throw that word greed back in the face of the working class when the actual avatars of capital are the ones that are saying, uh, greed is good, man. Greed is actually, yeah. greed is great. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a little infuriating, <laughs> you know, in all honesty. <laughs> You'll never hear. It's just, it's really infuriating to hear capitalists be like, actually, self-interest, the reason why the capitalist economy works is everyone's just secretly a greedy little shit and we love it. And then turn around and be like, yeah, but actually leftists are the real greedy fuckers. Um, and that's bad. Actually, greed is bad when they when they do it. It's 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 great to build as the basis of a society, but it is horrible to have as an individual. It, it really does uh, drive home the libertarian philosophy. The libertarian mindset here is a childish one inherently, right? Because it's on one hand they want to be Gordon Gecko, right? They want to be the one saying greed is good. But on the other hand, they then want to look in, at you and say, uh, greed is only good when I do it. Hands off yeah. my toys. All right. Hands off my toys. Society? You see this ugly, horrible, corrosive, exploitative, extractive society? It's greedy and that's good. But listen here, you, you can't be greedy. 
That's dangerous. You can't be greedy. No, <laughs> no, no. See, see, these are my toys because right. they're mine. I mm-hmm. own these toys, and I also want some of your toys. But man, don't be greedy thinking you deserve a share of my <laughs> of, of my well. You don't get to play with my toys. These... Yeah, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I mean, the, the, we we have only touched on. Uh, the first part of this book, his his laying out the defense of property, his laying out the philosophical foundations for libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism and the, the society that he wants to create out of this this philosophical foundation. Um, if if we, if we even credit him enough with calling it a philosophical foundation. <laughs> it's, it's a mind palace. I'll say that it's a mind palace for sure. And and we are going to uh in the in the premium episode, we're going to we oh, we're going to move into that mind palace. I I am I am <laughs> I'm <laughs> We're going to violate the property rights. We're going. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, yeah, I ain't living rent free in that mine palace. I'm fucking squatting in it. I'm claiming squatter rights. This is mine. (laughs) Yeah, we go. in the premium episode, we're gonna move. In, we're gonna move deeper into that mind palace and actually understand what is his what, what is his policy prescriptions uh, for libertarianism. What is the vision of the kind of future that he wants um, at for anarcho capitalism? Right, because obviously, you know, he he recognizes he has to make that transitional move. Right, like you can't just jump from. Uh, a current society that we live in today and jump immediately off the cliff into an anarcho-capitalist non-society, anti-society. You got, you got to have a, you got to have transition. You got to have non-reformist reforms, right? You got, you got to start doing libertarianism. We got a transitional program. (laughs) 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 Yeah. We're getting into that, that, that anarcho-capitalist tanky, Right now, that's what David Friedman is. He's a fucking yeah. uh, he's a libertarian tanky, and and we're 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 gonna get deeper into that, um, and start picking apart some of the fucking wild ass policy prescriptions and visions that he has for things like uh, you know, we we don't need police actually, um, because what we need is we need to let a thousand insurers bloom, right? Like everyone's going to contract <laughs> out with a private protection agency um, and there's going to be a, a free market of competition in laws. Uh, there's going to be, you know, all kinds of uh, whoa, whoa, uh, arbitrage that's happening. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down there, Neil Stevenson. <laughs> well, yeah, the first cha- we're, you know, we are channeling our best snow crash impersonation. Um, and that is good. That's our guiding light. That is the future that we are going to uh, manifest when am- manatize, you know, for uh, the premium. And also going forward, you know, I'm inspired. I think, you know, maybe he's onto something with this anarcho-capitalist capitalism shit. Maybe, uh, maybe jealousy is a fucking disease that we are all plagued by and we need to punish um, other people by uh, just 
becoming landlords. We should just use the Patreon money to become landlords. And that can be the start of our anarcho-capitalist pivot. You know, we can hit up the seasteading institute and say, what about like a house steading institute where it's just, uh, we just make uh, massive shanty towns inside of apartment complexes. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential here. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting on our J.G. Ballard shit. We're getting on our Neil Stevenson <laughs> yeah. shit. Uh, Jeremy just said, don't get ANCAP pilled in the chat. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm swallowing that ANCAP pill yeah. in the next episode. It's, it's <laughs> the red pill it's not the blue pill you know the ancap pills when you take them both and and you say you can't tell me what to do you take the pills and that's that's uh that's how you become an ancap that's how neo became an ancap in the deleted scenes (laughs) so all right this is going to bring us to an end of our of our first part of our odyssey into the libertarian mind palace stick around for the premium episode that you can find at patreon.com slash this machine kills uh which you know actually now that i think about it kind of just proves david friedman right (laughs) stop (laughs) fuck how could we be doing (laughs) anti-capitalism while also god damn all right, you're gonna want to stick oh. around for this. This, this I'm, I'm, I'm doing a 180. I'm going back. I'm going. I'm. Ba- I'm. Uh, Lord forgive me. I'm back on my bullshit. I'm. I'm going libertarian. <laughs> we'll. We'll see y'all in the in the in the premium episode later this week. Later. <laughs>